The world is a beautiful but challenging place to live. And let's face it, life hits hard sometimes. So if you find your hopes and dreams and mental well-being needs a boost, you're tuned in to the right podcast. Welcome to Inspire Us with your host, Jay Paul Nadeau, a former hostage negotiator turned motivational speaker and acclaimed author of Take Control of Your Life. And now, here's your host, Jay Paul Nadeau. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Inspire Us. I have a warning about today's show. The content of today's show is graphic, and it is not recommended for young audiences or for anyone who may be upset or triggered by descriptions of torture and terrorism. My guest was abducted by the secret police in Dubai following the London bombings in the early 2000s, and he was accused of being the mastermind terrorist behind those bombings. He was tortured and finally released. He suffered from post-traumatic stress for several years, but he was able to climb himself out of that state. How did he do that? Well, you're going to discover that very soon. It is with great pleasure that I introduce you to my friend, Alam Kafoum. Hello, Alam, and welcome to Inspire Us. Hi there, Paul. I'm very happy to be here. It's great to meet you. Thank you. Well, it's great to see you again. And uh, yes, well, well, we originally met on Clubhouse and, and a lot of my listeners already know that I have found some real amazing people on Clubhouse and you're one of them. Alam is a, uh, a negotiations expert. And I remember he was running a room on negotiations and I dropped in just to hear what was going on because I too, as you know, am a negotiator. And I was fascinated by the things that Alam was sharing. And he had a a number of people who were also moderating with him who were sharing some gems and Alam through uh, his grace, he allowed me to join in on the conversation and made me a moderator. And we've been uh, in rooms since then and uh, developed a friendship since then. And then I got to find out a little bit about Alam's past. And I've got to say, your story is one that fascinated me, and I want to share it with our listeners because it's not every day we meet someone who went through what you did and came out positive from that experience. And Alum, I know that my listeners are probably wondering, what's he talking about? What's he talking about? What's he going to talk about? Well, I'm going to turn it over to you, Alam, to right. share your extraordinary story with us. Well, thank you very much, Paul. And look, it's... It's an absolute honor being here and it's an absolute honor having your friendship because uh, I really appreciated the input that you contributed in the room. And like I said, you know, you're welcome every time and we love to have you on the panel and, and it's always great, great knowledge that you share. So thank you so much for that, Paul. So, yeah, my story, look, for, for since I was in my teens, I've been negotiating. I grew up in a business environment. My father was an entrepreneur business type and um you know when i was at secondary school here in the uk i was wheeling and dealing buying and selling stuff at school right but as life progressed into my 20s that's when i actually became semi-professional in negotiating by chance and that was i got invited by a friend of mine who had finished university and graduated in, in law and had set up his first practice 
So he invited me over and asked me to come and sit in on a meeting that he was going to happen and on a meeting with an investment partner. And after the meeting, we were going to go for lunch. So I said, yeah, sure, you know, I don't mind, I'll hang around. And as I was stood in the office looking around, I saw the meeting room and the way it was set up. And it was set up in a very traditional way, table, chairs on one side, chairs on the other. And so my friend and his two partners went and sat on one side and they had the other chairs positioned. And so the investor came in and he was talking to them and they were going to lead him in there. So I went into the room and I positioned another chair next to where the investor would sit, but I actually shoved the chairs towards the end of the table and I went around and shoved the other ones so that it wouldn't be so adversarial and, and, and confrontational. And I positioned my chair and the investors at 45 so that we would be kind of crossing paths. And um, so when the meeting happened, I went and sat in. And as the questions were coming and the conversation was going back and forth, some of the um, questions that my friend asked, I would then interrupt and reframe it and soften it and make it more pliable for the investor. And then when the meeting finished, everybody shook hands, said it was a great meeting. And the investor asked me, he said, oh, hey, Alan, what's your role in this company? And I said, look, I don't do anything here. He's a good friend of mine. Funny enough, before you came in, or just as you came in, I saw the room set up and it wasn't very conducive. I said, look, I'm big on body language and understanding people and, and you know, uh, personality profiling and all this kind of stuff that I'm really into and, and that I use in my daily life. But I said, I just didn't like the setup and I wanted to make it comfortable for you, even though you're the money man. And he started laughing and he gave me his card. He said, look, I want you to call me. I have a look a lot of potential work for you you know it's great what you've done and that's where I started that was about 22 or something right so that was my professional introduction to it so then we fast forward to 2005 now I'm flying all over the world right and I have been for a number of years and I'm putting deals together for people and we are doing real estate deals and commodity deals and buyers and suppliers deals and anything anything that sounds interesting to me I will go off, learn about it, and then go off and present it and start putting it together. So I happened to be going out to the Middle East, to Dubai, for real estate project. We want to go and buy, because Dubai is booming at this time, and the land values are soaring. So there's a British consortium that a friend of mine had put together, and he wanted us to go out and negotiate this big plot of potential land that could have a condo tell on it. And um, so this was my second or third visit out there. And uh, it was uh, July 2005. So I, I fly into Dubai. And we go about our business. I go get a haircut. And we're there for a few days, enjoying the life, meeting people, getting ready, having the meetings, et cetera, et cetera. And then one evening, I'm in a restaurant, a favorite restaurant of ours, with three of my friends, we're having a nice meal. There's a cabaret show on. And um, after a bit of to and fro with one of the guys who keeps coming in and going out, he said, look, I'm, I've had a really strange phone call. I'm not sure what it's all about. And um, somebody called me, I don't really know. Anyway, let's just enjoy our meal. The next thing was that five guys came into the restaurant, dressed normally, civilian clothing, came over to our table and actually started um, telling us, look, you need to come out to the lobby. So we walked out, went into the lobby of this hotel, and all of a sudden I have my pocket reached into, my phone is grabbed, my keys are grabbed, and I, 
I'm, I'm looking at this guy and I'm ready to throw a punch and my friend's like shaking his head. And then I pay closer attention to the guy and I see like an earpiece and I think, well, anyway, all of a sudden I'm pushed out of the door. I'm literally dragged outside and thrown in the back of a car and my friend's brought with me. The guy jumps in, opens a glove compartment, pulls a gun out and, and, and we, we, we've got the thumbcuffs on as well. And we're driven off and I'm like, whoa, 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 what's going on here? Look, um, there must be some mistake here. Well, what do you think you're doing? And, and they're like, be quiet, be quiet. Uh, just shut your mouth. And uh, we're driven off at high speed. And then all of a sudden, the car stops. The guy jumps out. The driver jumps out. They go to the back of the car. And I'm thinking, we're about to get a bullet in the head here. And the boot opens. Then they come back around, pull some hoods out, and they hood us up, get back in the car, and they drive off again. So now we go from the beautiful, smooth tarmac roads of Dubai onto this bumpy terrain, which I'm pretty certain is the desert. And it, you know, and then the car stops, and uh, I'm pulled out of the car. And um, at this point, you know, I'm hyperventilating, and I'm thinking, you know, I just can't comprehend what's going on. I get dragged into a building, and then I'm placed into a chair where my ankles are cuffed together, and the thumb cuff is taken off, and my hands are pulled behind me, and now I'm cuffed. I've still got the hood on, and I'm just sitting there in silence. Just, I can't believe, you know, that, that this is going on. The door flies open. There's a, several different voices in different languages, Urdu, Arabic, Pashto, whatever, English, all screaming and shouting at me. Then somebody punches me in the head and pulls the hood off. And then there's a guy screaming in my face. He says, you better start talking, Adam. You better start talking. We know who you are. We know, and I'm, I'm stuttering like, look, 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 look. I, I think, what are you talking about? And he goes, look, we know who you are. You're the terrorist mastermind behind the London bombings. Now, the London bombings had just taken place literally a week earlier or 10 days earlier. And this, this uh, and I, unknown to me, on this evening, there'd been a second attempt by a second group who were either linked or emulating the first group. So now, all of a sudden, I'm accused of being the terrorist mastermind behind the London bombings, which has caused so many deaths, so many injuries, so much carnage. I just want to let that sink in for a second. My heart was pumping so violently, I thought it was going to break out of my chest. My throat was constricted like, you know, I was being strangled. And my head felt like it was in a vice. And I couldn't believe it, it was so surreal. I thought maybe I'm just, this is a nightmare or something. I'm dreaming this. But no, you know, the, it's like, look, you better start talking. We know who you are. And I'm, I'm, what's your name? I said, look, it's Alan Gafour. No, no, your real name. I said, look, my real name is Alan Gafour. And I said, no, tell us your other names. And I said, I don't have any other names. I'm Alan Gafour. I'm a British citizen. Why don't you call the British government and ask them who I am? You know, no, no, no. We don't need to call them. They've told us who you are. They told us to grab you. Uh, they told us to pick you up. And I said, well, you know, and I'm thinking, well, that, that, that can't be possible. Why would the government say that? You know, I don't do anything wrong. I haven't done anything wrong. I don't mix with the wrong people. I don't talk to the wrong people. And, um, and then I'm told, look, we've got photographic evidence of you in Afghanistan training, of setting up terror camps in the US, of being involved in arms and bomb making and all this other stuff, which I have never, ever come across in my life. And I said, look, there's no way I've never been to Afghanistan. And I went to Pakistan and that was in 1993 and I never visited it again. 
and I certainly haven't set up any training camps in the US. I've been over to the States. I have a house over there and I've been to Disneyland and that's about it. So, <laughs> um, so the guy says, listen, you know what? It's over for you, my friend. You caused a lot of deaths. You better start talking. You better start giving us some answers. You're going to die here. You know, you're going to be thrown in a pit. We're going to let the dogs rip you apart. We're going to hang you. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And uh, we're going to leave you and we're going to come back. You better have some answers. And then they all leave the room and leave me sitting there with my thoughts. And I'm just like, this is incredible, man. This can't be happening to me. Well, you know, I just can't comprehend it, Paul. I cannot for the life of me comprehend why on earth this would be happening. And then from there on, literally, I was interrogated around the clock and normally in pairs. So two of them would come in at a time and it would go on for probably hours. There was no clock in the room. I was in a room with no windows. There was just very bright lights. Um, sometimes the AC would be turned up when they left. Sometimes they would turn it right down. So either I would go to extreme heat or I'd go to extreme cold. And then, um, and, and at this moment, I was chained all the time into the chair. So this went on for however long. And then I was taken from there, thrown in a cell for a while, and then dragged out, taken into another room. And again, it was started the same questions. What's your name? Tell us your real name. How did you do this? Why did you do this? What are the other things that you planned? How many years have you been training? Where's your terror camps? Where's this? Where's that? None of it of any relation to me because I, I can't answer it all i ever said to them look you need to let me make a phone call let me speak to the british consulate or you call the british consulate we don't need to let you call anybody you have disappeared you're under our control nobody knows that you are here i said well hang on you so you told me that the british consulate or the british government know the british government told us to get you and um, so these guys they would take they take it in turns uh, to interrogate me around the clock. There was times when I'd be punched and abused and knocked around. There'd be times when I was actually taken over to this, um, I call it the shithole. And it was literally, I would crawl on my hands and knees into this space that had shit, piss and blood in there. And they would shut the door. It was pitch black and it was extreme heat and I would be gagging in there. And the only thing that got me through that was you know, from being a teenager and being afraid of the dentist drill, I taught myself self-hypnosis. And I'll tell you, you know, being in this horrible, enclosed, hot, smelly, disgusting place, I would have to hypnotize myself to stop myself from retching and gagging and take my mind elsewhere. Mm. And, um, you know, when I got pulled out of there, there was a few times that I was taken to showers and they were turned on extreme uh, on, on, on extreme hot so that, that you know it would burn me um there was a time when they put they gave me some clothing to wear that had some sort of powder in it that actually ruptured and blistered and burnt all of my skin from my neck down right down to my ankles and i mean every part of my body was weeping and bleeding it was horrible um, and there was the constant um, abuse, the constant beatings and, and all the rest around the clock. So somebody would tell me they wanted to throw me in a pit and let the dogs rip me apart. The other team told me I was going to get shot. The other team told me I would be hung. 
And then there was one particular team of these two guys. And this chap, he he was a very cold, cold, miserable man. And he said, look, um, you know, we can't let you die. Um, you have to suffer. So I'm going to insist that you be put into solitary confinement. And only I have access to you with a doctor. And every day I will torture you and you will beg me to kill you, beg me to end your life. But every time you pass out, the doctor will revive you so that I can carry on inflicting pain on you. And he says, I will be the only face you will ever see and, and death will not come easy for you. And so, you know, the impact of this on your brain, as you can imagine, Paul, is horrendous. But, but I mean, th this is the process that I went through. But let me go back a few, uh, a few steps to the point of being accused of this. And then on the odd moments when I was left to myself to ponder what was going on, my concern was for my family. It was for my young son who was five years old. And my fear was that, you know, how is this boy going to grow up knowing that his father has been labeled as a terrorist? Kids get bullied, you know, and what, you know, how, how, how much worse is it going to be for this kid, for my son, you know? So that was a, that was a big, that was th that was eating away at me, Paul. That was really eating away at me. Uh, how's he going to cope? I mean, my brothers and sisters, fair enough, they they, they were older. They were in the twenties, uh, uh, late twenties, so they could move away. They could change their names, change their identities, and disassociate themselves from me. My poor mother would probably die of a heart attack because of these accusations. But it was really about my son, you know. That was a horrible thought to go through. But as this process went on and these guys exerted their authority on me and I mean, look, it's their job to get to the truth. But, you know, when you know that you don't have anything to go on, then surely you should have a look at what you've been presented with. But um, I mean, that's another conversation. But look, you know, essentially I'm, I'm being bullied, I'm being beaten, I'm being mentally and physically tortured and interrogated and, and questioned all the time so you know what i i made a decision and it, it was it, it was pretty much early on that you know what if you're going to kill me fair enough you're going to kill me and you know the pain you're going to put me through i'm okay with that because i know the human body can take so much pain but you know I'm going to take so much pain and then I'm going to die. So, the you know, there's going to be a release. There's going to be a relief and it's fine. Whatever pain happens, happens. And maybe, you know, this is God's way or the universe's way of for whatever wrongs I've done, this is how my soul maybe is going to get cleansed or whatever, right? I'm trying to justify it in my head for the, the, the horribleness I'm about to experience. But one thing I was certain for, and that was I wasn't going to die begging on my knees to no man. You know, if I was going to die, I'll die in my terms. So where does my negotiation and all my experience, my experience of body language and personality profiling and micro expressions and, you know, everything that I've ever learned about human beings and interaction, where does it come into play? Well, this was it. So I started noticing little things when they would come in and interrogate me and question me. And when they would leave me, they said, well, get in the corner and stand there and put me in a stress position, kneel on the floor, stand, arms up, arms out, this and that. And then they would come in and check 
I don't know how, what the time frame was, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, whatever it was, they'd come in and check. And um, sometimes they'd bring me some water or the odd times they'd bring me some food. Now, even the food wasn't like a regular times that I could have determined that it was breakfast or afternoon, <laughs> lunch or evening. Right. It wasn't, right? It, I mean, sometimes, but I didn't want to eat anyway, right? So when, they, when the guard would come in and check, and then he'd bring me the food or the water. I'd, I started to ask him, I'd say, oh, look, hey, where's, where's, your, uh, where's your boss? Boss? What do you mean, boss? Oh, the, the, the other chap you come in with. He's not my boss, he's my colleague. Oh, oh okay, oh, I'm sorry. I, I thought he was your boss because he, he always comes in first and you hold the door for him. And, 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 yeah, and you never speak when he's here. Oh, I can say what I want. Oh, really? Oh, okay, okay. You know? And so I started kind of creating this, friction between them all all the different guys and so some of them I'd pick away one of one in particular I started picking at him and I'd say look I don't see anybody showing you any respect and I'm wondering to myself is this is this because your maybe your father got you the job and he said yeah how do you know that and it was, a, it was again you know as you know Paul when when we've been involved in this for so long we kind of make presumptions based on what we see and so and again knowing how nepotism exists in the Middle East, is kind of a, a pretty safe calculation to make, you know, but it, <laughs> to them, it's like, okay. So they, how do you know that? And I said, well, you know, I figured it, you know, that, hey, listen, they don't show you no respect. And so then this guy, he came in on his own one time and he's questioning me for hours. And, and as he's going through that, I'd answer them, answer them. I'd, I'd ask him a question and then it, that would open him up. And then I'd ask him another and then it got into the point where I'd be asking him questions. And then all of a sudden, he'd snap out of it and say, hey, you know, go stand over there. I'm the one asking the question. <laughs> and, um, and, and, you know, and I started, and, and it's crazy, Paul, right? Because, look, I, I'm going to die. So I don't give a damn. So I kind of started having fun with this, where sometimes when I was speaking with him, I'd say, hey, listen, you know what? And I was talking to this guy, and he looked at me, and he said, oh, you're a real jackass. You know, you, you, you look like an idiot. You know, and, uh, and then, uh, you know, but, but obviously when I'm saying it, I'm saying it, and then he'd be listening, listening, and hey, you just call me an idiot. You say I'm a jackass. And I said, no, 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 I'm saying the guy, well, I'm telling you about in the story. And so, so as I was saying, you know, these kind of interactions were taking place. And then one time one of them was asking me something and he says, look, when you came here, you went to the barbers, you went for beauty, beauty fear in your face. And I says, I went for a haircut. And he says, yeah, but, you had a style done on your face. And I said, what do you mean? He said, oh, I said, okay, yeah, I went for a shave and I had, uh, I had the stubble trimmed down and I had like two stripes put in and this kind of shape created on my face. And he goes, yeah, that was your disguise, Mr. Alam. And I says, oh, I said, what do you mean? He says, well, you had two stripes going down your face and Taliban means two students. Now, I didn't know what Taliban meant. I find that afterwards it means student. It doesn't mean two students. Mm. But at the time I said, yeah, you're right. I said, you're right. I said, how did you figure that out? Nobody else knows that. I said, you're very, very clever. I said, you're the smartest man in here. I said, look, all of them are desperate to break me. I said, but how about we do a deal? I said, why don't you be the one that breaks me? I'll give you information about what else is going to happen in the UK. And maybe you can get all the glory. Imagine that. They're going to have to promote you to the top 
and all of these are going to have to look up to you. So I'm, I'm, I'm painting the picture to him. I can see him salivating. The pupils are widened and everything. I said, all you have to do is go and bring me a phone so I can call the British consulate. I said, look, if I explain it to you and you tell the British consulate in the wrong way, even if you mess one word up and they convey this to the British authorities in the UK, I said, my people are going to be triggered and they're going to know that this is going on and, and it's going to be hell. So I said, I must convey the message myself. And I'm thinking, bring me the damn phone and let me tell the consular, I'm trapped here. You need to get me the hell out of here. <laughs> and so I've seen him salivate and he runs off. And I'm waiting and waiting and I'm, and I'm in this room and I'm thinking, okay, okay. And, but I also had a suspicion that there was two cameras in this room as well that I'd seen embedded in these cabinets in the wall. And um, anyway, sometime later, the door opened and this tall, broad gentleman comes in and followed by this guy and he says oh um he tells me you want to talk and I say yeah have you brought a phone and he said no no you can talk to me I can call the consulate any minute I want on my phone and uh, I said no you're not going to understand what I'm telling you it's very very specific you need to let me speak to them so that I can tell them exactly what's going on and he says no 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 you must tell me I said well I ain't going to tell you nothing then I said, because I was talking to him, said I wasn't talking to you. I don't trust you. I trust him. So I said, you know, I want somebody to give me a phone. And you, I said, you're stood here. You can hear me tell them what I'm going to tell them. I said, then you do what you want with me. So that one kind of broke down. They went off. Next thing I know, I get dragged in for a polygraph test. And I'm and so I go into this room, right? I'm, I'm, I'm always hooded, Paul, when I'm transported around. I'm hooded, I'm chained, I'm shackled, dragged through. As they drag me around, they bash my head in the rails, they trip me up, they, you know, all the usual stuff. And then I go in this room and I'm placed in this chair, the hood's taken off, I'm still cuffed up. And I see all this set up with all these wires everywhere. And I think, shit, man, I'm about to get electrocuted now. And then I kind of paid closer attention. I thought, okay, you know, I'm, I'm not sure what, what what's going to happen here. And um, a gentleman comes in, he says, look, I'm wiring you up. This is a polygraph test. I've been doing these for 20 years. So he wires me all up and starts doing this, goes through all the questions. When we finish, he slams the uh, laptop shut and runs off out of the room. The other guy comes, hoods hood me, and takes me back off and throws me in, in one of the cells. And then I get dragged out of there later on, and uh, this guy, he, he's there. He said, look, I've been doing polygraph tests for 20 years. And I've never met a bigger liar than you. And <laughs> he says, we've let your friends go. We know you're the guilty one. We know you are the one who's actually caused all of this. So, I mean, look, this, this whole situation was so crazy. But all of these things that happened, I mean, I mean, I carried on doing the stuff that I was doing. There was a time uh, when one of them came in and he, he gave me a, a glass of water normally they brought me the little plastic cups which had the foil seal on it and this time was an open cup so I looked at him and I smelt the water and I spilt it on my sleeve and I rubbed it and I smelt it and I said so what is this and he and then two of them two of them had come in they looked they looked taken aback and uh, and uh, and the uh, huh I said what what is this you bring me water with sodium pentothal the sodium pentothal is the truth drug that I remember from meet the fuckers Oh. And I say, you, you bring me water with sodium pentothal. I said, do you know how many people try and poison me? I said, take your water and get out of here. And, and they scarper off. And then as they, you know, and then some of the others, I was telling them, look, you know what? It doesn't matter that you've caught me because here's the thing. 
you are fulfilling what I wanted to happen. I'm going to be a martyr. When people find out that you caught me and killed me, I said, I'm going to be a martyr and a thousand are going to rise up in my place. I said, but I'm going to go to heaven with the virgin, 72 virgins, right? I said, I'm going to be having this great big orgy. I said, but what's going to happen to you? I said, you know what's going to happen to you? My people are going to come and they're going to come to your house and they're going to take all your loved ones, your mother, your father, your wife, everybody. I said, have you ever peeled a potato? And he's looking puzzled. I said, well, they're going to start peeling the skin. There's seven layers to the human skin. I said, eventually you'll see the capillaries and the veins. And I said, they'll keep peeling. I said, but they won't hurt you, my friend. They, they won't hurt you. And then you will look in the mirror and see me smiling at you from heaven with my virgins. I said, and you will beg for death. I said, maybe you'll be so weak. I said, you look weak. You'll probably take your own life. You probably won't be able to live with yourself. So I'm, I'm doing different tactics with different ones, knowing what their personalities are for. Right. And then eventually it gets to the point where these guys say, look, I'm going to write a confession. I'll write this crazy confession out. I'm friends with Saddam Hussein and Osama bin Laden. Uh, I did. I went on hisbola.com to learn how to make a bomb. I set this up. I set that up. And they said, well, how did you raise the money? And I said, look, I did a sponsored bike ride across the UK and I raised the money. And also I've been holding fates. And they go, oh, what is a fate? What is a fate? I said, look, you told the British government you have me and that, you know, I've done a sponsored bike ride and I've been holding fates to raise the money. Now, for all the international visitors and listeners who don't know what a fate is, a fate is a church bring and buy sale for cakes and for old stuff. <laughs> so I said to this guy, I said, listen, it's a, it's a code word that the British government will understand. I'm not going to explain it to you. You tell them you have the terror. Because I'm thinking there's a 1% chance that they may just actually communicate with them and tell them that we've got the guy and this is the information he's given us. And when they say that, they're going to say, listen, we don't know who you've got, but this poor idiot needs to be let out of there. So I've just got that little glimmer of hope of getting out somehow, right? Yes. And <laughs> so then anyway, I mean, eventually what happens is, is the um, consulate come, they turn up. This lady turns up, she comes into the room, she says, look, I'm from the British consulate. We've been trying to track you for the last few weeks. We didn't know where you were. You completely disappeared. They only told us and confirmed a couple of days ago that you were being held by them and um, that you've been accused of a crime. Here's a leaflet. Try and get yourself a good lawyer. That's all I can help with. And I said, hold on, hold on. I said, look, I'm a British citizen. I said, I've done stuff in the UK for MPs and for government-related bodies and stuff. So I said, you've got to go find out. I said, I'm innocent of this. She goes, look, we can't interfere in foreign matters. But anyway, later on that day, and then another lady came from the consulate and she kind of explained it a little bit more. She said, look, we are trying to get you out of here. And um, anyway, later on that day, we were let out. And as they were letting us out, my friends came out one by one. And the guard, who he said to them, he said, this this guy is crazy man he's just saved your lives he, he he wouldn't break he wouldn't he wouldn't you know this man just get him out of our country just get yourselves out of our country we want you out of here in 12 hours so, <laughs> so we came away and then and then there was another whole drama that i go into in the book about the chases and the potential setup and the shooting they were trying to do and man it, it was incredible paul but eventually we got out of there and I flew back to the UK after so much drama. It didn't take me 12 hours. It actually took us 36 hours to get out of there. 
And uh, and again, right up until the last minute, I was convinced we were going to get pulled in again and either get shot or killed or, or you know, whatever. And um, eventually when I came back to the UK, uh, over the next few weeks and months, it turned out that my name had been discussed right up at prime ministerial level. All the redacted documents I asked for came and my, I, I'd been discussed at number 10 Downing Street. And um, under the Freedom of Information, it showed that there was a second party to witnessing and who was pulling the strings to what was going on. And it was uh, incredible. I was diagnosed with PTSD. Oh, by the way, one of the guys, he, when, when they let him out of there, he looked like he had just aged so, so severely. He was a broken man. And, and he truly was a broken man, Paul. He... Um, mm. He's never recovered from it. He's never recovered from it. The other two, they took some time. They're okay. They got on with their lives. And it's very rare that when we meet that, that anybody wants to talk about it. I mean, I'm open about it because to me, writing and putting the experience down, the whole purpose of the book and, and the emphasis on the book is not about me going through the pain and the torture i talk about the mental aspect of it but in the book i actually i'm more concerned with breaking down how the interrogation was the body language the personality profile profiling and for those who will read the book they'll actually learn some things uh, about my methodology and things that you and me both have learned over the years and um, so the book is all about how to kind of cope in this situation how i coped and how, how to kind of come through the experience. But it took me a number of years after this with wild oscillations of emotions and depression and everything else and other things in my life that happened, like the death of a nephew five years old from leukemia and my sister's stillborn baby. And then in the late 2000s, my mother dying in my arms. They, they brought enormous grief to me, more so than I would have expected under normal circumstances. And when I kind of traced it all back, it was an accumulation of what had happened to me there. And look, the biggest thing was for so many years, Paul, I was angry. I wanted answers. I couldn't get no answers because you can't sue a royal sovereign state. That's apparently the law. And so the uh, advice from the Dubai authorities was that if I wanted to go back there and find my interrogators who claimed they were the secret police, I could go and do that and sue them individually. Good luck with that. So, so you know, I was angry, I was hurtful, and I wanted to hurt them back for what they did to me, for the hell they put my family through and everything else. But like I said, it was a number of years of the cycles of this, the depression and the wild oscillations of emotions that I finally got a grip on this. And that was when I decided to forgive them. I thought, you know what, I forgive them. They acted on bad information. They don't want to own up to it. They don't want to accept their mistake. Fine, you know what? I don't need to live with that. And I don't need to live with this pain, this poison. Because you know, they, I think there's a Buddhist saying or whatever it is, uh, revenge is like giving yourself poison because you hate your enemy or something like that, right? Right, right. And <laughs> so it was, you know, so when I made that realization, that's when things started clearing up for me, when I let go, when I forgave, when I forgave myself, 
And you know what? When I look back on that situation, Paul, and I look upon it as a blessing, right, which people are going to find hard to believe. But look, I didn't think I was going to make it out of there, and I did. And so you know what? I am grateful every minute of my life for the sun, for the rain, for the snow, for the wind, for a smile from a stranger, from somebody being happy in a, sh in, in, in a shop that I've gone into or a mall because, you know, I made them laugh. So, you know, for the smile of my be beautiful wife and my child and everything else. So when, when you open yourself up and you just forgive and you let it go because, you know what, don't hold on to the pain and the, and the anger and the frustration because it doesn't serve you. When you let that go, man, marvelous things happen. And, you know, the world is, is a beautiful place and there's beautiful people in it, people like yourself, you know, who are kind and caring. And, you know, I mean, look, the craziest thing is, Paul, that after this, I actually went on to do more security stuff. And I was involved with teams that were monitoring the Olympics. And I've been involved in other stuff and other government agencies. Mm -hmm. and um, because of my skills and because of uh, you know what I can do but um no I'm happy to be here and I'm always happy to share my story and I thank you Paul for listening and I thank your listeners for and I hope they take something away from this that look no matter how bad things get right there's always there's always hope there's always that chance right even if it's one percent you if you hold on to that things can turn around. And um, I mean, there's so many coaches and people who talk about facing adversity and fair enough, people do go through adversity and, and, and pain and things. But I mean, I am one of the few unique people to have actually experienced this and then actually to go on and then negotiate for others' lives in Africa and Afghanistan and other places. Uh, as well as, you know, things being taken, planes and boats being seized and, and all sorts of crazy, amazing stuff. So, you know. Alan, Alan, wow. Wow. What a remarkable story, number one. And number two, I thank you for sharing and in great detail what you went through, being accused of the London bombings, being in a restaurant, watching a cabaret show, surrounded by five strangers and somebody's got an earpiece next thing you know you're kidnapped and thrown into a vehicle you're uh, you're locked in uh, you know a spot you're brought to a secret location and you go you undergo like and if anybody's seen the television show 24 one of my all-time favorites with Kiefer right. Sutherland and uh <laughs> And Glenn uh, Morshower, who I've got to know, it's just so intense what you went through. What I really, there's so many things I admire, Lum, from your story, is your, your resilience and the way in which you were able to find the courage to start playing the negotiation game in which, you know, you, the persuasion and, and getting into their minds and stuff like that, which I'm sure uh, contributed to your being sane today because you fought the good fight and you never gave up. And that's the big thing. There's so many takeaways from what you've said here today. And one of the things is that people are going through difficult times right now, but let's take a look at your story. So for all my listeners out there, 
when you're going through tough times and you feel like giving up, just think of Alam's story where he could have given up at any time. He could have, uh, you know, easily been killed. He could have easily, easily uh, just confessed to everything and have been tortured even more. So yours is a story, a remarkable story of perseverance and just determination and smart thinking and negotiating. Thank you so much. The other lesson that I know that my listeners will get from this is the lesson and the all-time power of just forgiveness, letting something go before it consumes you to the point where there's no coming back. When we hold on to the things that have happened to us in the past and we're angry and we want to get back, we want to get revenge without letting it go, just let it go and look what it's done for you. That has really contributed to the quality of your life. And you are a fine example, Alam, to people. Your book, Innocent Terrorist, it's a must read. It is an absolute must read. And Alam also does a number of different keynote talks on this topic and on several other topics. He is working uh, to better this, this world and to help with his experiences. You, sir, are a kindred spirit because we've gone through some similar uh, situations, you and I, and, and that's why we connected on such a profound level. So I'm going to, uh, to turn it over to you for a few moments before we close. How can people get a hold of you? What's your website? And I'm going to put this into the show notes, but just um, in, in closing, can you tell people you know, what is your final message to our, our listeners? Not a final message, but your, your closing message. And how can people get a hold of you? So, um, so look, I'm going, to share with you, I'm going to share with the listeners um, a quote that is on my website. So you can go to my website to get, get a hold of me, alamgafur.com. You can find me on LinkedIn. For those of you who listen to Clubhouse, look me up. You'll find me in certain rooms. I run a negotiation room every Friday where we break down all elements of communication. You're welcome to come and listen. We'll get you up on stage. Um, you can find me on Twitter. So I am every, every, everywhere, you know, uh, available. And please do reach out to me. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really privileged, Paul. Um, now, my focus is on, look, I work with CEOs. I do a lot of business stuff, but also I do a lot of this resilience and I'm actually, I've got a program coming out, which is about resilience and, and leadership through and from adversity, which we're hoping to launch over the next few months and bring into very many corporate clients. And um, there's also another program that I'm launching, which is a young entrepreneur movement worldwide. And that's to encourage youngsters to get into entrepreneurialism and to become creative because the world has changed. It's not one of jobs anymore. And so I wanna give youngsters the encouragement and empower them to actually you know, learn how to use technology for the benefit and wheel and deal and create business for themselves, buying and selling, whatever else, so that they can, one, they will never feel um, down about not being able to get a job that they'll know that they can always stand on their feet and hustle 
the good way. You know, they don't have to go to drugs. They don't have to go to any bad route. They can hustle the good way and make a life for themselves. And also through this program, you know, there's a chance for the youngsters to learn how to speak and pitch, which will also inspire confidence in them. And then also there's, there's other elements where I am going to be teaching the youngsters about some of the negotiation stuff because they love it, you know, and the body language and things like that. They're fascinated by it. And the problem is, you know, in, in today's day and age with the phones, uh, a lot of the youngsters are so consumed with just being on the phone. And I think communication is going to be a big thing going forward because those who can communicate are going to be able to command, you know, groups of people. And those who can't, if all you can do is text and talk through a phone or a laptop, then, you know, you're going to be struggling. If you can't read emotions in people and you can't sympathize and empathize properly and you can't ask the correct questions, so these are all very, very important things. But look, there's a motto that I live my life by. And I just want to share that with you and the, and the listeners. And it's a, it's a Latin quote. And it is, Nemo vir es qui mundum non redat meliorum. What man is a man who does not make the world better? Mm, I love that. So all, all I want to do is if I can make one life better, then, you know, my, my purpose on this world will have been fulfilled. If I can touch 100 lives, uh, I've set myself a goal to try and touch thousands of lives, and I hope I get the chance to do that. But like I say, even if we, even if we can change one person's life, right, then you know what? We've done something. So uh, I'll leave that with you, Paul. Thank you. We leave the world a better place when we do that. Shukran. Shukran. Alam. <laughs> thank you, my brother. Thank you. Uh, thank you. And I will see you on Clubhouse very soon. Absolutely, Paul. Thank you so much. Take care. You too. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week for another insightful episode. If you haven't already, hit the subscribe button and leave your comments. For more information, check out our website at www.inspireus.ca. Remember, it's not what happens to us that matters most. It's how we respond to what happens to us that does. Stay strong and resilient. 